listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. So glad to be looking at God's Word with you again this morning. What a grace it is that we even have God's Word, that God has condescended to speak to us, to make himself known to us, his will and his ways. Uh, So we we give our minds and attention every week to the Bible, uh, because that's where God speaks to us. That's where we come to know him. It's one of the reasons we strongly encourage people to spend time every day in God's Word, even even if it's just for a few minutes, to spend some time in God's Word. We put a calendar together every month. Uh, We just call it a Learning Christ Together calendar, Uh, just a a schedule by which you have a daily Bible reading, usually just one chapter, a a memory verse for the week. You can find those on the table out in the lobby. Um, We're uh, uh, coming up on the last week of July. We'll have a new one out next Sunday for August, but I encourage you to, uh, to grab one of those if you don't have another plan, another system for reading in God's Word. Well, we are this morning in the fourth week of a series on the life of Jacob, a, a series entitled Struggle and Blessing. Struggle and Blessing. So I invite and encourage you to turn to Genesis 29. Genesis 29. <coughs> uh, Jacob is the heir of great promises and blessings from God. Promises and blessings that go back to his father Isaac, Go back to his grandfather, Abraham, uh, the promise of innumerable descendants, that his descendants would become a great people, a great nation, that they would have a land to live in. Uh, And curiously, and, and not altogether clearly, also a promise that they would be a blessing to all peoples. I don't know if they fully appreciate what that includes and what that involves, but we see in the bigger picture of the Bible that that goes back to the beginning of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, when sin enters the world through the temptation of the serpent, and God curses the serpent and says that, that a descendant, a seed of the woman, will crush the serpent's head, that's going to make right what Satan and sin have made wrong in the world. And we recognize uh, from this distance, as we look back on this, that that's the way in which Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob, their family is going to be a blessing to all peoples. But Jacob himself, he's not not living in that blessing yet. He's living a life, as we've seen over the last three weeks, with a lot of struggle, a lot of trouble, a lot of difficulty. And and that's where we find him really here this morning in Genesis 29. Uh, We find him with more struggle, more difficulty, more trouble. So let's look at this passage together. Before we do so, let me pray and ask God for his help. Uh, Father, I I thank you this morning for the gift of your word, which makes you known to us, that you've been so kind and gracious to reveal yourself to us here. So I pray that as we look at Genesis 29 this morning, as we look at the Bible, that we would see you in it. We'd see something of who you are and uh, how you are loving and gracious and holy and just and something of how you work here this morning. And Father, we pray also that it would show us something of ourselves, that we would see in, in Jacob's troubles and Jacob's sins something of our own trouble and our own sin and, and that we would learn to come to you in the right way 
as you've called us to, and to trust you as we should. So I pray you'd use your word now in our lives. Father, we, we could very easily sit here this morning um, daydreaming, um, thinking about how this passage might be meaningful for somebody else. Uh, we could very easily blow off what you want to teach us this morning. I pray that we would be open and receptive to your word, that your spirit would use it powerfully in the lives of your people here uh, for your glory and for our joy in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> One of the hardest things in the world to do is wait. One of the hardest things in the world to do is wait. Uh, for example, consider a child anticipating their birthday. Our daughter Evie's eighth birthday was yesterday. Uh, it didn't sneak up on us and surprise us, though. She made sure of that. We had conversations like, Dad, how many days until my birthday? Oh, just a second. 83. Okay. Right? Conversations like that. She's really been looking forward to her birthday for a long time. She, she planned out the entire day. It was a total day of Evie. She's going to have French toast and donuts for breakfast. Uh, she had a list of the gifts, the exact gifts that she wanted. She wanted supreme pizza from Jets for lunch. She wanted to go bowling in the afternoon, but just her and Kelly and I and maybe Ian, none of the, none of the rest of the kids were supposed to go. She wanted spaghetti and garlic bread and some certain kind of green bean for supper, a strawberry poke cake for her birthday cake. She had figured out exactly what would make her special day extra special. She anticipated it for a long time. She gave us reminder notes, thanking us in advance for how we were going to do exactly what she wanted done on her birthday. It can be hard to wait. Of course, it's not, it's not just kids, is it? And it's not just birthdays. You, you and I have a hard time waiting, too. Sometimes it's big things we're really looking forward to, big plans, big life events, big trips, big blessings, and we're ready for them to be here right now. Sometimes we're wading through hard things that we really want to end. Big pain, big disappointment, big frustration, big sorrow. And often we're not very good waiters. We're just not. We, we feel like we have to do something. We've got to make something happen so that our waiting will end. We chalk it up to our personalities. Well, I'm just an impatient person. But the real issue, as so often as the case, is spiritual. Beneath our waiting, beneath our frustration, beneath our impatience, are questions like, is God working here or not? Is his plan good? Is it going to be accomplished? Why is he taking so long? What's he waiting for? Well, Jacob knows how we feel. God's made big promises of big blessing to him and to his family. And, and just last week we saw in chapter 28 that God appeared to him. God himself in a dream, a vision of a stairway going to heaven, God at the top, and God reaffirming all of these promises to Jacob. I will be with you. I will not leave you till I fulfilled all the promises I've made to you. 
It was an awe-inspiring experience. Jacob was terrified. He was amazed. He worshipped, committed himself to God in light of God's promises and blessing. But, but here in Genesis 29, a few weeks of time have elapsed. But it seems that Jacob's faith is starting to lapse too. He's getting impatient. Once again, he's going to take matters into his own hands. He's going to forget the Lord. The same kind of things you and I tend to do when life gets hard and we get impatient and we're tired of waiting and we want to see things happen in our time and in our way. When things don't come as quickly and easily as we might hope. We need, we need a strong reminder that God is still working in our lives. In his time, his good time, and in his good way, God is still working in our lives. Look, that is categorically true if you are one of his. If you are, by faith in Jesus Christ, a child of God, God is absolutely, without doubt, for certain working in your life. He's not forgotten you. He will not, cannot forget you. He's not failing to accomplish his purposes, even if it's not in the time and the way we would choose. God has made great promises of blessing and joy to us through Christ. He is working to accomplish them, even if they seem far away, even if they seem impossible right now. God is working, first of all, despite our self-reliance. God is working despite our self-reliance. Look at Genesis 29. Look at verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey. He's leaving the promised land, leaving his family, headed back to find a wife from his mother's family back in Padanaram. He went on his journey. He came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. And Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, well, Do you know Jake Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter's coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. So Jacob has arrived in, in the land of the Easterners, it says. The, the land of Padnerum, uh, chapter 28 called it. Uh, we'll see in a couple verses that it's the city of Haran. Haran is on a major pathway or road. In fact, that's what it means between the Mediterranean world to the west and, and the Mesopotamia, what will be Babylon and Assyria to the east. Uh, it had a population, archaeologists estimate at this time, of perhaps as many as 20,000 people. It's not a major metropolis, but it's a big city, especially for the ancient world. Jacob is encountering shepherds in their flocks, so he's still clearly outside of the city proper. We don't know what kind of experience Jacob has with big cities, but it quickly becomes clear he's very comfortable among shepherds. That's the kind of people he's come from back in Canaan. Uh, the fact that he was a quiet man who stayed among his tents doesn't mean he didn't work. He, he meets these shepherds with their flocks, and they are from Haran, which is where he wants to go. They know his uncle Laban, 
which is who he wants to find. And they tell him that Later's daughter, Rachel, is approaching with a flock of sheep, which, which seems almost too good to be true. And when he sees her, he decides she's almost too good to be true. It sure seems that God is guiding his way. So Jacob turns into a sheep expert. Verse 7, the shepherds come and he says to them, why are you still here? There's lots of daylight left. You need to get back out and get the sheep back in the pasture. Um, Not sure why he says that. Whether he wants to look like an expert, they're not his sheep. Um, Whether he just wants them gone when Rachel shows up, it's not altogether clear. And they say in verse 8, well, we can't until all the flocks are here and we roll the stone away. See, the well is covered by a, a big stone, a heavy stone. Well, uh, well, water generally in that part of the world, a very precious commodity. And so they don't just leave it open, they leave it covered with a stone, uh, probably at least in part because they don't want just anybody coming along taking water. Uh, rather, when several flocks get together, several shepherds will get together and together move the stone because it's extremely heavy, and that way it keeps any one person from coming in whenever they want to and hoarding the water supply. So what does Jacob do? Look at verse 9. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. So, so as soon as he sees Rachel, as soon as he has an audience, it's like, whoa, I'll just move this heavy stone all by myself, which is an impressive feat. Jacob must be a powerful man. But it's hard to escape the sense here that he's, he's kind of showing off. He's telling these shepherds what to do. She shows up. He's moving heavy objects. Look at my brute strength, you know. He's moving things around. He's trying to make a good impression, trying to display his strength and power to people who are used to, accustomed to hard labor. What's more telling, though, is what Jacob is not doing here. What's more telling is what he's not doing. If you just read this story, like we did this morning, all by itself, you might not think about this. But if you were, if you were reading through Genesis, so for instance, if we were the children of Israel, centuries after this, poised to enter the promised land, the people for whom this was originally written, if we were there, if we were reading through Genesis, this would stand out. Because just a few chapters back, we have a story that is remarkably similar Turn back to chapter 24 of Genesis. The story in Genesis 29 is so similar to the story in Genesis 24. In fact, Jacob Jacob knows this. He has to know this. It's his own family's story. It's the story about how his father and his mother came to be married. But look at just part of this story. In this case, Jacob's father Isaac hadn't traveled to Haran himself. His father Abraham had sent a servant to bring him a wife back. But, but look how this servant approaches the situation. Um, look at verse 10. In the first several verses, he's, he is um, uh, 
let's look at verse 10. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. He arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and, and who shall say, Drink, and I'll water your camels. Let her be the one whom you've appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I'll know you have shown steadfast love to my master. Well, before he'd finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she'd finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, a man took a gold ring. The man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arm weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithlessness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. See, in this story, it's Jacob's own family. It's the story of how his mother and his father came to be married. Jacob knows this story. His story is almost, almost a total repeat. He's traveling the same journey back to the same place, back to the same family for the same purpose to find a wife. But what we don't see Jacob doing is asking God for help. We see him moving ahead, trying to impress, taking matters in his own hands, where Abraham, his, his grandfather's servant, had prayed and said, God, let it be, show me who the right woman is. Jacob just sees and desires and begins to scheme and make his own plans. He doesn't pray seeking God's help. He doesn't set some kind of test to discern God's will. He doesn't give thanks to God when he finds the girl he wants. He's, he's showing off, trying to make things happen, relying on his own plans, his own schemes, his own cleverness. This self-reliance hasn't served him well in the past. We've seen that over the last several weeks. He's schemed to steal a birthright and a blessing, and he gets them, but it blows his family up. God's working in his life, but as we'll see, his, his self-reliance not only dishonors God and his promises, but it makes things more difficult for Jacob. That's because, despite how we feel about our own self-reliance and our own ability, God's plan is better than our plan. God's way is better than our way. We can't improve on it. We can't take matters into our own hands against his will and timing and purposes and think, well, I'm going to improve my situation above what God might do. No, no. God's, play, God's way is always best. Of course, not just for Jacob, but you and I too. 
Sometimes we run out ahead of God, and we just make a mess of things. We try to make things fall the way we want them to fall in our time. Or maybe we don't run out ahead, but we're so impatient, so eager, so unwilling to wait on God to accomplish his purposes that, that we get deeply frustrated, we lose our joy, we lose our confidence and trust in God. But it's not just self-reliance that makes things more difficult for Jacob. God is working our lives despite our self-reliance and despite our lack of faith. Jacob is brought to his uncle Laban's house. Look at, back in Genesis 29, look at verse 11. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. Well, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. He goes to his uncle Laban's house. It says he told Laban all of these things. What things? Well, probably his story. Probably everything that had happened to him, why he was there, why he had had to leave his father's household. Probably that's why Laban says, surely you are my flesh and my bone. In other words, you're just like me. You're not just saying we're related. You're just like me. Laban recognizes that Jacob is a schemer and a deceiver, just like Laban is. And we'll see in a minute how big a schemer and deceiver that Laban is. So Jacob works for Laban for a month. And, and Laban decides he wants to make a deal. Look at verse 15. Laban said to Jacob, Because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I'll serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it's better I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Laban wants to make a deal. He's got two daughters. Leah is his older daughter. It says her eyes were dull. And it's hard to know what exactly that means. It's hard to know whether in the context it, it means, uh, it could be translated in any number of ways, whether that's a good feature in, in the ancient world, even now to some extent in, in the, the Middle Eastern world, um, women, the face, and sometimes even just the eyes were the only thing that were visible. So the quality of eyes would be very important. Um, and so it may be saying here that, that um, Leah, all Leah, the only thing about Leah that was really attractive was she had beautiful eyes. It may be saying that her eyes were not beautiful. It's, it's difficult to know for sure. But on the whole, the point is that Leah just didn't compare with Rachel as far as being attractive. It's just uh, Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance, and Jacob loved her and wanted her. So he says, I'll, I'll work seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Is that a good deal for Jacob? Is that a good deal? It's... On one hand, it seems to him like it's totally fine. He works seven years, and it seems to him like no time at all because his love for her was so great. But he's in a difficult spot. Uh, the expectation in ancient marriages was the groom would pay the father of the bride a bride price in exchange for her. Uh, it would compensate the father for the loss of labor created by letting, letting his daughter leave the family. Um, they're thinking in different categories largely than we are today, as you can see. 
but my daughter goes, I lose all her work, it's going to cost you to have her. So usually a bride price would be paid. Jacob, however, doesn't have a bride price to offer. I don't know why that is. Surely when his father sent him out, go find a wife, his father knows that's going to be needed. And Isaac doesn't have trouble paying. He's a very wealthy man. I don't know why he comes empty-handed without something to offer. He certainly can afford it. But what Jacob does have is a promise from God. God has clearly guided him to Laban, clearly guided him to his family. You remember back in, if we were to keep reading the story back in Genesis 24, uh, the servant of Abraham will show up. He will come bearing gifts. And the family wants him to stay. Let's stay here longer and wait. And, and the servant says, no, no, no. Don't, don't delay me. I've got to take her back to my master. And eventually she agrees and they go. I don't know what kind of leverage Jacob has, but he, he certainly has much to offer, Rachel. He could make an offer to send a bride price back after they go home. He could have insisted that Laban honor God's plans and intentions for the family. He has inherited the promise that's been made to Abraham's family. He could have done something other than give away seven years of his life, seven years that turn into 20 years, ultimately, as we'll see in a few chapters. But Jacob isn't really looking to God right now. He's not really relying on God's promises or counting his promises. His faith is absent. He's making deals. And he's all right with that on the front end. The seven years fly by. He loves Rachel. But then his plans start to fall apart. Look at verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you've done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Hmm. Jacob is eager and impatient to have Rachel. Seven years is a long time to wait, so Laban throws a party. Marriages were a big deal in the ancient world, too. A celebration for family and for community. I don't know whether it was a cash bar or an open bar, but clearly that was part of the celebration. Because evening comes and it's time for Jacob to have his new wife. And Laban brings her to his tent. She would be by custom heavily veiled. Her face would be covered. Jacob is almost certainly inebriated to some degree as he consummates his marriage. But then morning comes and lying next to him is is Leah, not Rachel. And he is furious. He's furious. Because there's no going back now. He's consummated a marriage to Leah. He can't send her back to Laban. Laban can't marry her off to anybody else after this. It's possible he's having difficulty marrying her off anyway, which might explain part of the reason he pulls this stunt. And Jacob is understandably angry at the deception and mistreatment by Laban. But God has plans for Leah and plans for Jacob through Leah. She'll be fruitful. She'll bear Jacob many sons, six of them. And when this story is written down, centuries later, it's written for the children of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, who have grown into a great nation. They're preparing to enter the promised land after being delivered from Egypt by God himself. 
six of those 12 tribes look back through the generations at Leah and say, that's our mother. That's our mother. Fully half of the tribes look back to her. One of those tribes, Leah's fourth son, Judah, will be the tribe by which God brings the Messiah, Jesus, into the world nearly 2,000 years later. Jacob's angry. He's, he's been mistreated here. He's been deceived. But God's still working, accomplishing bigger plans, better plans even than Jacob's own. Look, you, you and I will be mistreated in life too. And sadly, we'll mistreat others. But that doesn't mean God's plan for us is derailed. God isn't trying to figure out how to pull things off as though other people are messing him up. Think about one of Jacob's own sons, Joseph. You remember his story later in the book of Genesis? Joseph is hated by his brothers, sold into slavery, right? That's a miserable, terrible place to be. There's no future in it. Except God is with him and gives him success. And God uses that and exalts Joseph to second in command in all of Egypt and uses him to save the lives of not only countless Egyptians because of the famine that comes, but his own family back in Canaan. And when finally Joseph is restored to his brothers, you, you remember what he says. He says, they don't, they don't, don't let that bother you anymore. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for what? Good. Was he mistreated? Of course he was mistreated. But God meant it for good. Look, it's no different in your life or mine. People mistreat us. But God's plan doesn't derail. People may mean it for evil. God means it for good. God uses even hard things in our lives to accomplish his good purposes in us. Well, look, there's one more consideration in this story. And it gives us one more reason that we could doubt that God is working in our lives. Look at verse 26. Jacob has just said, why did you deceive me? Verse 26, Laban said, well, it's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Jacob knows exactly what he's hinting at there. Jacob's the younger son who's stolen the firstborn blessings of his brother. Laban says, well, that's not how we do it here. Here we honor the firstborn. And Jacob has to feel that there's some kind of poetic justice, some kind of, hey, you reap what you sow here. Jacob, the schemer and deceiver, who used his father's poor, poor eyesight to steal a blessing, has now been deceived in the darkness of his wedding tent, behind a veil, behind a veil of inebriation probably as well. His limited eyesight in that context has led to him being deceived and mistreated. And it'd be very easy, I imagine, for Jacob to say, look what I've done. It's come back to me now. It's a poetic kind of justice. I've reaped what I've sown. Jacob has been guilty. He's been deceived. He has deceived and now has been deceived. But God is still accomplishing his purposes in Jacob's life. Jacob doesn't need to dwell 
at great length to, to tell himself, well, God can't. I, I, look, I've messed my own plans up. I've messed my own life up. God is, God is probably not going to accomplish his good purpose because of the mistakes that I've made. Easy, easy for us to say and do as well. Uh, think again of God's people as they prepare to enter the promised land, as they, the first readers of this book of Genesis. Right, they can look at the past 40 years of their life. Why have they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness? Their rebellion, their hardness of heart, their refusal to trust God. And what has God done? He's, he's punished them. All that generation except Joshua and Caleb die in the wilderness. But in the end, he brings their children and their tribes into the land that he had promised them. Even in light of our own sins, our own mistakes, our own failures, God is still accomplishing his purposes in the lives of his people because he is a gracious, loving, powerful God. Well, as we finish this morning, it's possible that we might be asking, what is God's purpose for me? What's God's purpose for me? And if we went around this room, we could look at many different lives and many different details and uh, intricacies of, of individual lives, but, but we can answer that at least generally in this way. God's purpose for us is to make us more like Christ and bring us into fellowship with him forever. Look at one more verse as we finish this morning. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, well-known verse, Romans 8.28, says, We know, Romans 8.28, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. How do we know? Verse 29, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God is calling his people, calling all people, to unite with Jesus Christ through faith in his death and resurrection on our behalf, to make us like Christ, to bring us home, certainly all the way to glory. And so Paul says, Paul who himself knew much trouble, much difficulty, who knew what it meant to be mistreated, who, who could look back at his own life and see lots of reasons God wouldn't use him as a persecutor of the church, as an enemy of Jesus. Paul could look and say, God is using all things, working them for our good which will certainly be accomplished ultimately when we're glorified with his son Jesus Christ look we have a hard time waiting we're eager to see that glory now we're ready to go back to Eden now we want to enjoy that blessing that peace that joy that wholeness that life we want it and we want it now and what we see this morning in Jacob's life, and we see Paul affirming here, is that God is accomplishing his purposes, despite, despite our self-reliance. We mess things up. We make it harder on ourselves. But despite our self-reliance, he's working. Despite our lack of faith, we rob ourselves of joy and peace, but God still works. 
despite the mistreatment of others, which sometimes feels like it's messing everything up, God is still working. Despite our own past failures and mistakes and sins, God is through Christ accomplishing his good purposes. We can know that with confidence. We can live, therefore, with joy. We can pray and ought to pray for patience and hope that God in his own good time and his own good way will accomplish glorious good in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning, I ask for every person here, I ask for my own soul, a deep conviction of your grace and love and good purposes for your children. Father, you, you didn't spare your own son, but gave him up for us all. So, so you're not holding anything good back. Every good thing that we ought to have, you've given to us and will give us. And so, Father, I pray for great patience and hope and joy. Father, this week and in our lives, in the lives of people at Springview, this week, some of us will be mistreated. Some of us will labor under guilt and conviction and shame for mistakes that we've made in the past. Some of us will be tempted and give in to, to self-reliance, to trying to make things happen and going outside of your timing and your will and ways to accomplish our goals. Some of us will falter in faith. So, Lord, we ask for grace. We need your help. We need your peace. We need your hope. I pray that we would take great encouragement from your word, great encouragement from the gospel that you love us and are for us, and that through difficulties, through mistreatment, through our own mistakes and our own sins, that you are accomplishing good in the lives of your people, that we might minister from a place of deep joy and encouragement and hope and might share that and minister that to each other as well. I pray this for your glory and our joy in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to thank you for coming this morning. It's been good to see you, uh, be with you this morning, uh, look at God and his word. Let me send you out with these words of benediction before you go out and sign up to volunteer at Heritage Festival, Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.